0: Like I said, we are officially one week into the new year of 2024, which probably means that many of you have made, and some of you maybe have already given up on your New Year's resolutions. (laughs) Raise your hand if you have a New Year's resolution this year. Anybody? Okay. Good for you guys. I read an article this week about New Year's resolutions, and they did a survey in Forbes Health to try to find the most common New Year's resolutions of 2024. And what they found was that of all the New Year's resolutions made this year, people who have at least one resolution, the top category is improved fitness. I want to be healthier. I want to get more fit. Second, 38% of all New Year's resolutions will be about improved finances. The third category, improved mental health. And then it goes on from there, weight loss, diet, uh, make more time for loved ones, and so forth. So those are the most common categories. Now, what about success? You've probably heard this before. According to this study, by the end of month three, so by the time we get to the end of March, 60% of all people who have resolved to do something in the new year will have quit. 60% of all New Year's resolutions fail by month three, and of the people who actually get to the end of the year, it's only about 1%, is what some studies have shown. 1% of people will make it the whole year. And that got me thinking, what makes the difference between somebody who has a New Year's resolution and they fall off the bandwagon in week two Or in month two versus someone who lasts the whole year. And in general, what studies have shown is that the determining factor is setting the right goal. That's all a New Year's resolution is. It is a goal. And so it's about setting the right goal. The most successful goals are specific, they are measurable, they are attainable, and they are time-bound. So specific, measurable, attainable, and time-bound. And so instead of saying, I want to improve my fitness, that's a goal, isn't it? I want to to get more healthy this year. You make it specific. You say, I want to walk on the treadmill for 30 minutes a day, five times a week. And I want to do that the whole year, 12 months a year. So that is specific, it's measurable, it's time-bound, and it's attainable. You can walk for 30 minutes a day. But if I said, I want to make a billion dollars in the next year. That's specific, it's time bound, it's measurable, not attainable. Or if you said, I wanna read more this year, that's a goal, but you probably aren't going to do that. Even if you did, you wouldn't know if you accomplished it or not. But if you said, I wanna read these five books by the end of May, one book a month, and I'm gonna schedule 30 minutes on my calendar to read every single day, that's something that you probably will do. So it's good goal setting that makes the difference which got me thinking about this. What is your main goal in life? Do you ever think about that? What is your main goal? Now all of you guys, you have things that you are chasing after all the time. Whether you're conscious of it or not, whether you're being intentional about it or not, there are things that you are pursuing with your time and with your money and with your energy and with your intellect. All kinds of desires, all kinds of pursuits in your life. But when you think about all that you are after, if you had to boil it down into one most important overarching goal, what would it be? What is your main goal in life? The Apostle Paul, in Philippians 3, he tells us what his is. In verse 10, Paul says, My goal is to know him that's his goal paul's goal the purpose of his life was to know god and i want to suggest to you that as you think about this next year and really as you think about the rest of your life that you make it your life's goal to know god to know him Paul tells us you can know God. Now, that in and of itself is mind-blowing. You can know him. But then what he says is actually fairly obvious. It's fairly self-evident. If you can know God, he says, knowing God is the most valuable pursuit in all of life. This is what he says in verse 8. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now this idea of knowing God, it's all over the Bible. So Paul says the most valuable thing you can pursue as a human being is knowing God, but this is actually what God himself says. In the book of Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, here's what God says in chapter nine, verse 23. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That is incredible. Now, one of the things that's incredible about what God says here through the prophet Jeremiah is that he lists three very common pursuits for human beings. You see what they are? Strength, wealth, wisdom. Strength, wealth, and wisdom. And do you remember what the top three categories of New Year's resolutions were, according to Forbes? Fitness, finances, mental health. Nothing has changed in thousands of years. This is what people are after. Strength, wealth, and wisdom. But God says through the prophet Jeremiah, listen, you weren't created to be strong, and you're not strong, (laughs) Look at a silverback gorilla. Look at, a, look at an elephant. You're not strong. That's not what you're designed for. Don't worry about being strong. You weren't created to be wealthy. Even if you're in the, the top 0.1% of wealth in the world, you're Elon Musk, you're Bill Gates, God says, I own the universe. I'm in control. You weren't made to be wealthy. That's not what your life is about. You weren't even made to be wise. Wisdom comes from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God says what you were made for, what you were created for, is to know God. That is why you exist. So last week I said that I have three goals for us as a church for these two studies, last week and this week, as we look at the spiritual disciplines and knowing God. The first goal is that you would believe that you can know God. And you would understand what that means. We talked about this in depth last week, that knowing God consists of closeness to God and conformity to Him. That we want to walk with Him, we want to experience Him, we want to have intimate relationship with Him, but also we should become like Him. Closeness in relationship, conformity in character. Our second goal is that you would intensely desire to know God and be growing in that desire throughout your entire life again we talked about this last week but i want to camp on this one for a minute this morning and here's why like i said before if you don't want to know god then everything else we're going to talk about this morning it will seem like checking boxes it will seem like a chore it will seem boring it will seem uninteresting it will feel like a burden if you don't strongly desire to know god so I want you to look at John chapter four. I've been studying the gospel of John recently. And in John four, very famous passage, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. He stops at a well in the middle of the day. He meets a woman there. She's drawing water out of the well. And he asks this woman, hey, could you give me a drink of water? And this is a very unusual thing to do because Jews and Samaritans did not interact with each other. They didn't associate with each other at all this is actually what john tells us in his gospel and so this woman responds john 4 verse 9 how is it that you a jew ask for a drink from me a samaritan woman jesus answered in verse 10 if you knew the gift of god and who is saying to you give me a drink you would ask him and he would give you living water sir said the woman you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. So she kind of scoffs. It's almost like she's mocking Jesus a little bit. You don't even have a bucket, dude. (laughs) We're going to get living water. It's in quotation marks. Jesus said, verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, there's a lot we could say about this interaction, but here's the question that Jesus is asking you and me. This is the question. What are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? He says, I'm not talking about water. <laughs> He's not talking about water. He's talking about the deepest needs and desires of your soul. What are you thirsty for? Some people pursue money and they pursue. Possessions some people pursue health and fitness some people pursue experiences fun adventure entertainment Some people pursue close intimate friendships some people. It's romance, but underneath all of those common human pursuits. There's something else There's something much deeper What people want what you want whether you're aware of it or not is purpose It's meaning It's joy it's peace, it's lasting fulfillment, it's life, that's what you want, that is the essence of life. And Jesus says, when you drink from your hobbies, you're going to get thirsty again. And when you drink from money, possessions, wealth, material things, you're going to get thirsty again. And even when you drink from close friendships, even close family relationships, you may find some measure of comfort and purpose for a while, but you will get thirsty again. And the reason is because all of these things, even though they're good, they are gifts from God, they come in a limited supply. They're limited. So you can get money, but eventually you're going to spend it. And you can get health, maybe, but that health will fade no matter how fit you are. You're gonna get old. It will deteriorate. You can get close, meaningful relationships, but the older you get, the more you know. People change. Our lives move in different directions at times. People move away. Eventually, even if you are lifelong close friends, people's lives end. Everywhere you look for life in this world, you are dealing with limited supply. It's like drinking water out of a glass. mean, that's good. I was thirsty. Good glass of water. Now it's empty. It's gone. But this is what Jesus is saying. He says it to this woman, and I believe he's saying it to you and to me. He says, I have life. I have meaning. I have joy. I have peace. I have purpose. I have adventure. I have intimate friendship in unending supply. And I will happily give it to you if you just ask. This is what he's saying. And he says it's like drinking not from a glass or even a bucket. It's like drinking from a fountain. He says whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact... The water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Jesus says the the supply of life that I have for you, it's like a fountain. And not only can you get it from me, but it will flow forth from you. That is mind-blowing. We have a fountain, drinking fountain, down in the basement. And if you go down there and you want to get a drink of water, you press the button, boom, what happens? Water comes out. Now, how long will the water come out for? In theory, indefinitely. As long as you press the button, that water's gonna flow. It's just gonna flow and flow and flow and flow and flow and and it never runs out. It's just this, because it's connected to the city water supply. You just have an unending supply of water. That's the way a fountain works. This is what Jesus says will happen. This is what he offers you. I will give him Water that will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, what does that mean? He says, listen, if you drink from me, you'll get eternal life. What does that mean? Well, it means, among other things, you get God himself. This is what Jesus says later in John 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ christ the psalmist puts it this way in psalm 37 4 he says delight yourself in the lord desire the lord make knowing and experiencing god the aim and the main goal of your life and what will happen he will give you the desires of your heart it's an incredible promise c.s lewis put it this way I love this. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. This is his claim. Now, I give some examples. A baby feels hunger? Well, such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself then a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. He's saying the same thing Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, everything in this world, whether it's water, that's like the most basic example, or it's money, or it's relationships, everything, it will not satisfy you. You will become thirsty again. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is those things weren't meant to satisfy you. They were meant to point you to the source of true satisfaction. He goes on, he says, if that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Now, he's talking about knowing God forever about living in the presence of God in paradise, in heaven. But the essence of this is knowing God. Knowing God is the treasure of the universe. It is the most valuable, greatest goal you can pursue. And I hope you guys believe that. I hope you learn to cultivate that desire, to fan it into flame. That's our second goal, that you would intensely desire to know God more. Because without that desire, what we're going to talk about next, it will seem boring. (laughs) It will seem very unattractive to you. So our first two goals, they are wonderful, they are lofty, they are glorious, they are good goals. We want to understand that we can know God. We want to desire to know God. But they're not very specific. They're not time-bound. They're not measurable. And so our third goal answers the question, How do you do it? How do you do this? How how do you know God and how do you grow in your desire to know him more? How do you attain closeness and conformity to Christ? Our third goal is that you would have the necessary tools to know God practically and employ them daily. So with the rest of our time, we're going to answer the question, how can you know God? How do you do it? First, you have to be a Christian. Okay, how can you know God? You must be a Christian. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That means no one knows God except through Jesus. Nobody has a relationship with God apart from Jesus. Apart from Christ, you can know God in a sense. You can know him as your creator. Romans 1 talks about that. Everybody knows God made us, it's obvious. And you can know him as your judge, but you can't know him as your father, which means you can't have a relationship with him because of sin. Because of your sin, God stands as a judge over you and he has to punish you. And so Jesus died to remove your sin from you. The eternal sinless son of God was punished on the cross in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be made righteous. And the Bible says anybody who will trust in what Jesus did for them, they'll be born again. They'll be made righteous, they'll be made holy. Your sins are washed away. God gives you his spirit and you are adopted as his child. And now you can know him as your father and your friend. Instead of his punishment, you can experience his love and kindness. So you have to become a Christian. That's the first step to knowing God. But what about after you trust Christ? After you trust Christ, you don't just automatically know God as well as you're ever going to know Him. Just like those of you who are parents when your babies are born, okay, now you have a relationship with that child, but it takes a lifetime to know each other, to get to know each other. Your, your, your babies, when they're born, your two-year-olds, they don't know you as well they're, as they're ever going to know you. My oldest is 11. He doesn't know me as well as he's, he's ever going to know me. It takes time and it takes means. And so God has given us means. He has provided us with three means. Now there's probably more, but three major categories of means for knowing him, growing in our relationship with him. Last week we talked about the first, which is to hear his voice. We need to hear his voice. Do that by reading the word, hearing the word, studying the word, meditating on the word. If you want to know God, you need to know what he's like. You need to know who He is. You need to know what He values. You need to know what He prioritizes. You need to know what He thinks. What He expects. You need to know what His plans are. You need to know what you can expect from Him. Now, how are you going to know those things? He has to tell you. (laughs) How does He tell you? He does it through His Word. Written down in the Bible. And so, my strong recommendation to you is to hear His voice every day. If you weren't here last week, go back, listen to that sermon. There's some practical suggestions, but make a plan for how and when you're going to read, study, and meditate on God's word. Next is to have his ear. You need to hear his voice, and you need to have his ear. Relationships go two ways. Okay, so I like to listen to podcasts, and so I I know a lot about certain people who do podcasts. That doesn't mean I have a relationship with them. That doesn't mean I really know them. I know a little bit about their mind, their values, the, the way they think. But relationships go two ways. So we listen and we speak. And the way we speak to God is through prayer. Now we could do a whole sermon series on prayer. We don't have time for that. I want to make three quick points on prayer. First, prayer is a privilege, it is a great privilege. You get to pray. You get to pray. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, he says that because Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, and Jesus ascended back into heaven, and Jesus right now, he sits in the throne room of God serving as your high priest. What that means is he intercedes for you between you and the Father. He's constantly, always, reminding the Father, so to speak. God doesn't need reminder. But but he's, he's showing and constantly conscious of the fact that your sin is taken care of. He says, Father, no, remember? I died for him. I died for her. They're good. They're righteous. They're holy. He intercedes like a high priest. And because of that, the author of Hebrews says, here's what you should do. Hebrews four sixteen. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Do you see what he's saying here? What he's saying is Christian. You have direct access to God all the time. all the time. You can enter his very throne room and approach him in all his heavenly glory at any time, and you can do it uninhibited. You don't have to be scared? Oh, is God? You know, does He want to listen to me right now? Is He going to find me acceptable? What if I say something wrong? He says, no, no. You can approach Him with boldness and He will listen to you. Not only can you do it, but He'll pay attention to you. And not only that, He will help you. He will comfort you. He will encourage you. He will advise you, strengthen you, give you endurance. Now, just... To try to capture a little sliver of what this means. I want you to forget about your politics for a second. And I want you to just imagine if you had direct access to the president of the United States. As far as I can tell, this is the most influential, powerful position in the world. Or at least, it's way up there. And imagine if you had direct access to the president. And so at any time, for any reason, you could pull out your phone, boom, get him on FaceTime. And he's like, hey, Darren, how you doing? How's it going? How's your day? What do you need? You just need a, need a friend, need a listening ear, need some encouragement, need some advice, happy to help, what's going on? That'd be amazing. Now imagine if in addition to that, the president said, hey, is there any way I can use my presidential powers to make life easier for you? I know you mentioned your neighbors are kind of annoying you. How about like an FBI SWAT team? <laughs> I'd have them there in five minutes. Money's a little tight. How about we just cancel your taxes for the rest of your life? All of the presidential powers available to help and serve you. Would you take advantage of that relationship? Now again, forget about your politics because some of you are thinking, no, (laughs) no, I wouldn't. (laughs) But let's assume that we have a president who is good and just and fair. You would hit him up every day for sure. I mean, just to keep the relationship warm. Hey President, how you doing? Just want to say hi, just checking in. Just in case you needed him tomorrow. I mean, you would and you would feel utterly privileged to get to. How much greater of a privilege is it that we have access to the creator of the universe, to the God of all the heavens and the earth. Prayer is a privilege. Secondly, prayer is a duty. You get to pray, but you also ought to pray. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. This is not a recommendation. This is a command. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These are just two examples of dozens and dozens of commands throughout the Bible, Old Testament and new, for God's people to pray. You ought to pray. Martin Luther, the spearhead of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote this. He said, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. It's what we do. A Christian who doesn't pray is an oxymoron. It's kind of like if I said, hey guys, I'm a cobbler. You know, that's not, I make shoes for a living and uh, come, come over to my shoe shop sometime and you come to my shoe shop and I'm selling ice cream. There's not a shoe in sight. I don't work on shoes, I don't fix shoes, I don't know how to do it. You would say, you're not a shoemaker. <laughs> you're, you're an ice cream salesman. So a Christian is meant to. We ought to pray. Now, why are we so strongly commanded to pray in the Bible? There's many reasons, but one of the main ones is our last point, which is that prayer is a necessity. So you get to pray, you ought to pray, and you desperately need to pray. I hope you sense the seriousness of this. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He says, finally, brothers, verse 10, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Sometimes people get uncomfortable when we talk about this but you need to hear this whether you like it or not Christian you are in a war there is a battle going on for your mind and for your heart and for your thoughts and your affections all the time and Satan's strategy is not hey you should go to the strip club You should do drugs. That's what most people think. They think, oh, I'm good. You know, I'm good. I'm not really under spiritual attack. Satan's strategy is anything, anything that will dull your affections for Jesus. Anything that will distract you from loving him and wanting to know him. That's the strategy. There's a battle going on for your mind and your affections, and there's a battle going on in the world for people's souls who don't know him who aren't born again, who don't have the hope of eternal life. And it's not a battle between Democrats and Republicans. It's not a battle between capitalism and communism. The differences in those philosophies, they are mere outcroppings. They're symptoms of a war between spiritual forces of good and evil. And Paul says, if you're going to fight a spiritual battle, you need the right weapons. You need the right tools. And he goes into this very well-known section on the armor of God, which we don't have time to exposit, but at the end of that, the exclamation of it, what does he say? Verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. And then he says two more times to pray. Would you pray for me? Pray for my ministry. Samuel Chadwick wrote this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. If you want to know God, if you want to grow in your desire to know God, you must pray. Now, there's way more we could say, but let me give you some quick practical suggestions so you can develop some actionable goals for your own relationship with God in prayer. Okay, step number one. This is what I want you to do. This week, in your time with the Lord, open your Bible and study Psalm 5 and Matthew 6, 5 through 15. We could do a whole sermon on both of those passages. We don't have time for that right now. And so, you guys, go get in your Bible, study Psalm 5, <clears throat> Matthew 6, 5 through 15. Make it your goal to pray every day. Every day. If you're going to make that an actionable goal, that means you need to schedule a time to pray. When are you going to pray? Figure it out, write it down, put it in your calendar. Pick a quiet, secluded place to pray. This is not my recommendation, this is Jesus' recommendation. Pray in secret, that's what he says. Now why is that? Well, one, I think it's because it's not about other people seeing you pray. So that's part of it. But also, it's because of my next practical suggestion, which is to pray out loud. Again, this is Jesus' practice. This is David's practice. Pray out loud. There's all kinds of reasons for that. It doesn't mean you can't pray in your spirit. You can't pray silently. You should. You can. God can hear your thoughts. He knows your heart. But praying out loud helps you. It helps you focus your mind. It helps you focus your emotions on the Lord. Next, set the amount of time and complete that amount of time. Let meditation on the Bible guide your prayers. And decide what to pray for ahead of time. So it's good to have a prayer list. Pray through the prayer list. Do that. But also, just read the text of Scripture and let your prayers flow out of that spontaneously. Keep a list of answered prayers and share them with others now you should pray alone it should be a, a, a discipline that you do by yourself and you should pray with other people pray with your family pray with your community group come to our monthly prayer nights tomorrow night we have a prayer night seven thirty. 830 for the ladies another great way to pray with the church is to join our church prayer group so we have a prayer group that has a prayer list and it's incredible and the way you do that is go downstairs and there is a qr code that you can scan and you can join that prayer group and what you're going to get if you join that prayer group is you're going to get an email with our church prayer list and one of the ways you can participate is just get the email And you can just pray. You can just be aware of what's going on and you can pray. The other thing you can do in that group is you can submit prayer requests. There's a link in there and you just say, hey, this situation's going on, this person in my life, could the church please pray for this? And Barb Earl, she manages our prayer list. She will send that out and say, hey, please pray for this. Sometimes there's urgent prayer requests. You've seen them come through. Hey, we need prayer today now for this situation and we can pray together as a church. So you can scan that QR code. The other thing you can do is if you get our announcements email, which they're coming through MailChimp now, and so I know some of those are going to junk mail, check your junk mail, but those emails, every week, there's a link, join our prayer group. So announcements email, QR code downstairs, pray with other people. The other thing I'd recommend is read books about prayer. Study prayer, grow in prayer. Prayer by Tim Keller is one of my favorite books. Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Have a plan, keep a journal be accountable. If you want to know God, you have to hear his voice, have his ear, and finally belong to his body. We're going to try to race through this last piece. Belong to his body. Knowing God is both an individual and a team sport. Super clear biblically. Throughout the Bible, there are several places where the authors of the New Testament, they describe the church as the body of Christ. We are are a body we are members of one another with jesus as the head so just like your body your head your brain controls the direction controls the parts of your body working in unison together but you have fingers and toes and legs and internal organs and skin and you have all of these parts that have to come together and work together to be the body the church is the same way jesus is the head but we have darren we have john we have reed we have laura and we all are a part of one body. We are all designed by God to work together for his mission. And remember we said that knowing God involves both closeness to Christ and conformity to Christ. So we want to know him in relationship, but we also are to become like him in who we are and in what we do. And so you have to ask yourself, what was Jesus's primary goal on this earth? And you would be correct to say it was to know and glorify the Father. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So Jesus has been knowing God, glorifying God. He is God. The Trinity is a little bit mind-bending. But He's been knowing His Father, glorifying His Father for all of eternity past. He's going to continue to do it for all of eternity into the future. He didn't have to come to earth to do that. Why did Jesus, what was his primary goal on this earth? What was his mission? Matthew tells us he came to save people from their sins. This is why he came. This is why he gave his whole life. It was for that cause. And he left the church. He left us. And I don't mean us in like a universal church sense. He left left us right here with that same mission. In Romans 10, Paul says this, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If you really know God, I really believe this. If you really know God, not just know about God, but you know him, you can't help wanting to make him known to other people it's just the way we're wired i love the green bay packers i just can't help talking about it (laughs) they might make the playoffs this year i mean that's crazy (laughs) you just can't the things you love the things you know you can't help but tell other people about them it is baked into the cake jesus preached the gospel And after he ascended into heaven, his disciples preached the gospel. And after they died, the early church preached the gospel. And the only reason, if you're a Christian today, the only reason is because somebody explained the gospel to you. They taught you the gospel. They told you about the grace of God available in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian today, then God is saying to you, go tell other people. Go tell them. Our church has a mission statement. Our mission statement is that we exist to glorify God by making authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who love and worship Him in all they do. So that's the goal. This is the Great Commission. Jesus, before He ascended into heaven, He said, go and make disciples. But you can't disciple someone who's not a Christian. You can't help somebody worship God and love God if they don't have a relationship with Him First. And so, the most loving thing we can do for people who don't know Christ is teach them the gospel. There's so much more that goes into belonging to the body of Christ, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. But here's my challenge to you practically on this front. Here it is Think about evangelism as a spiritual discipline. So few people think about evangelism this way. When they think spiritual disciplines, they think read, pray, memorize maybe fast, fellowship, worship. Those are incredible things, gifts of God. But evangelism ought to be a spiritual discipline, and until it is, very few people will do it, very few. So that means, just like with reading, just like with prayer, have a plan. Make it actionable. So one good way, pray for specific people. Don't just say, hey, God, give me opportunities to share the gospel, that's a good prayer. But pray for Johnny, Sally, Susie, Pray that they would become Christians. Say, God, would you give me an opportunity this week when I see them in this situation to share Christ with them? Pray for specific people who aren't Christians. Make time-bound goals. Say, man, God, would you give me the opportunity to share the gospel with one person in the next month? If you really make that your goal, you can do that. I mean, that is incredibly attainable. Whatever makes sense for you, make time-bound goals. Next, get prepared. There is a measure of skill involved with sharing the gospel. There's no doubt about that. And I think many Christians, they don't do it because they feel unprepared. They, they look at themselves and they recognize correctly, I lack the skill. I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, if I get asked a hard question, I, I'm going to have no idea what to say. Now, that's not a reason not to do it. That's a reason to acquire the skill. Okay evangelism is not just for pastors and theologians and evangelists missionaries it is for all all christians so just like being an adult part of being an adult involves driving a car that's just the way it is and so what you did at some point in your life is you learned you acquired the skill of driving a car now you might not be dale earnhardt that's okay but you took the class, you passed the test, you got the license, you know how to drive a car safely. And if you're a Christian, you should be competent at sharing the gospel. You don't have to be Billy Graham. But you should be competent at sharing the gospel and that will take a measure of effort. So a couple resources I'd recommend. It's a very simple little book called Evangelism by J. Max Stiles. And then there's, uh, it's also a little book, a little bit more academic, but incredible resource called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer and there's probably a 1,000 other resources that are just as good as those that you guys could find. One other thing I would say beyond that is find someone you know is competent at sharing the gospel and ask them to train you. Just say, hey, because you're gonna have all kinds of specific questions about specific relationships and scenarios, and just say, what would you say to this? How would you get into a conversation with a person in this scenario? How do you navigate trying to share the gospel with your coworkers? I don't get paid to evangelize my coworkers. How do you do that? Find someone with experience and ask them to train you. If you don't know anyone, ask me. And I mean that. If you want to learn how to share the gospel, ask me. I will sit down with you and I'll teach you. Next, and lastly, get good at invitation. The gospel is an invitation into a relationship with God. But for so many people, knowing God starts just with an invitation to church. Hey, would you come to church with me and my family? Or to Bible study? Or to just a community group hangout? Hey, we're having a Super Bowl party. Why don't you guys come over? Making chicken wings, pizza. It's going to be awesome. Or even just dinner with your family. Hey, we're throwing some steaks on the grill later. Or in this economy, we're throwing burgers on the grill. <laughs> That's what we're <laughs> going to take a loan out to buy steak. Just have, pe- have your neighbors over for dinner. And even if you're terrified of trying to explain the gospel to somebody right now, it's not that scary just to invite somebody to coffee or invite somebody to come to board game night or something like that. And I would say inviting people into the life of the church in some way, it's not a small thing. People think, oh, that's not, that's nothing. It's a big, big, big thing. Learn to invite people into the life of the church. And if you're new at sharing the gospel, you're uncomfortable, Get them to church. They're going to hear the gospel here. And then over time, you can grow. You can, you can get better and more comfortable at actually having the conversation yourself. So if you want to know God, you have to be about His business. And a big part of that is saving people through the death of His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these means that You have provided that we can know You. And, and God, I thank You that It's not primarily a duty. God, you you have work that you're doing, and um, it's a great privilege to be involved in that. God, you don't need us to save people. We get to come along for the ride. We get to be a part of watching somebody pass from death to life and watching their heart be transformed and watching their life get turned upside down as their values change and their thinking changes. That is a joy. So God, I pray that you just help us, help us to grow in our desire for you. So that reading our Bible, praying, sharing the gospel, worshiping with the body of Christ, it becomes a joy. It's a means to an end that we desperately want. I thank you for your love, your mercy. Thank you for giving us yourself. Pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.